If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Vishal Garg, founder and CEO of Better.com, a digital-first home ownership company whose services include mortgage, real estate, title, and homeowners insurance. The idea for Better.com came to Vishal in 2012 when he and his wife went through the home buying process and realized how incredibly inefficient it was. He found a better in 2016 and built an all-in-one platform to take customers through the entire home buying process, from finding an agent to securing a mortgage to shopping for insurance. Five years in, Better has funded over $31 billion in home loans and provided over $7 billion in coverage through their insurance divisions. The company has raised over $400 million from top investors and won numerous awards, including Forbes Best Online Mortgage Lenders of 2021 and CNBC's Disruptor 50 list. Vishal is a serial entrepreneur. In addition to his role at Better, he is the founding partner of One Zero Capital, an investment holding company focused on creating businesses within consumer finance, technology, and digital marketing. At 21 years old, Vishal started My Rich Uncle, which became the second largest private student lender in the United States. It went public in 2005 and was eventually acquired by Merrill Lynch. Let's welcome my friend, Vishal. Hi, Vishal. Excited to have you. Thank you so much, Alexa. I've really looked up to all the stuff that you have done and you know, been, uh, you've been a pioneer in the fintech space here in New York. And uh, we're, we're both just trying to make the world a little bit better. Well, uh, no pun intended. Uh, phenomenal branding there. I want to start from the beginning. First, just the early days of Better. What gave you the inspiration to start it? And then for anybody who may not know about Better, what's Better in your own words? Better start- is America's fastest growing homeownership company. We help our customers buy and sell a home, finance a home, uh, insure a home, and much, much more. Uh, we want to be the one place for your home on your home screen. We started with mortgage because it was the hardest thing to do. I got the idea because I went through the mortgage process myself and we lost the home we were going to buy to a all cash buyer who actually paid like 7% less than us, all because we had this very broken process with a major bank. And you know, even though my wife worked there, we had great credit, we had assets. It just took them forever to do th- some basic things. And what was the sort of the salt in the wound was the fact that the banks weren't really even funding the loans. They were actually getting funded by other players in the market, you know, namely Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and, and the like. And I thought like, wow, you know, you hear you have American taxpayers trying to fund American taxpayers to be able to buy houses and raise their families in. And fundamentally, there's all of this friction created so that the process is much more broken than it should be when it's actually just an application of rules and processing of data and handholding through the various cumbersome steps. And so I said, you know, really, this is what machines are built for, doing calculations, processing data. And then if we can marry that with people who have empathy and who are, you know, uh, mission focused rather than commission focused, then we could probably 
fix this. And honestly, it was like 2014 and lots of things had been going right in the fintech landscape. People had started you know, making student loans better, making savings better, making investing better, but no one had really come out and like made home better. And so average Americans were still going to the same bad actors that caused the credit crisis to go and finance their homes. And so, you know, those two things coming together created this opportunity. It's like, wow, I think I can actually make this better. And we got started. We took over an existing mortgage company. We gutted it. We launched better.com. Within about a year, we raised money from Kleiner Perkins. And, and you know, I knew we were on the right track when like uh, Brooke Byers came up to me when we had gone to pitch uh, Kleiner and said, you know, this is the company that Jeff would have started had he stayed in New York and went to buy an apartment. Instead, he like drove out to, you know, Seattle and started Amazon. And it's like, wow, okay, cool. Like, this is a, we, we can really help make home better. We can make a lot of other things better. You're a serial entrepreneur. What were your first steps in founding this business? I, I think the next steps was like one deep research. Like I applied for a mortgage nearly everywhere. Like I destroyed my credit score, right? I applied for a mortgage with nearly every major bank in America. And I'm like, there really isn't anything better. And I was like, whoa, no, every one of these people that are doing this business are basically doing exactly the same thing. And then I went around and talked to a whole bunch of people that, you know, being in New York, it was really easy to get to know people who were, you know, in the hedge fund business, private equity business that had been involved with the mortgage companies. And they all kept on giving me reasons why it wasn't better. And each of those reasons were slightly different, but they kind of came back to the same thing. At the front end of it, you know, there's too many commissions at the back end of it. There's too many processes because the guys in the front end, you know, have low ethics because they're like very commission driven. And then the people in the back end have low incentive because they're very like process and task driven. Wow. This is like this deep, like spaghetti bowl of messed up stuff. This is a lot going to be really, really hard because the thing I was super worried about is like, what am I missing? Like, you know, what am I missing? Like there are all these companies like making so much money in this business. What am I missing? And I realized fundamentally there was like, they were all actually making so much money. So if you're a title insurance company, you have 80% margins. If you're a homeowner's insurance company, you have 40% margins. If you're a mortgage broker, you have 20% margin. If you have all these different people, they're all making so much money themselves that they have no reason to innovate. And that was like this profound thing where like, actually no one is incentivized to innovate. And once I figured that out, I felt much more confident moving forward. The next question was, you know, I was, I wasn't, you know, I was, th I was 35. And I was like, wait, you know, like startups are, are really are a young person's game. You know, you, you, it's going to be hard. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, what is my competitive advantage? I was like, well, you know, I have to bring forth something to justify, like, you know, being able to go to home and see my kids at 6 p.m. while the rest of the people working in the company are going to, you know, keep on cranking away. And I was like, well, you know what the benefit is, is this is actually is it's a very capital market centric business. It requires relationships. It requires context. It requires um, and 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 it requires licensing. So I was like, okay, you know, there's a moat that I can uniquely qualify into that you know your typical Silicon Valley entrepreneur who's 24 or 27 and you know is raising a is coming out of YC can't just become a mortgage company uh, to get approved to do business with all the big counterparties. You need 20 million of capital. And so it's like, okay, well, like there's a just to get started before you make your first mortgage, you basically need that much money. And so that was another advantage. And then I was like, okay, well, if I can marry those advantages with like amazing bleeding edge technologists, then we could actually make this happen. And so I, I started to look for um, partners 
that had built large scale matching platforms. And you know, I went out to uh, meet a few folks and every one of them had built like a one-sided matching platform, like more e-commerce. And I ultimately met Eric Bernhardson who uh, became our founding CTO who had built uh, the matching engine behind Spotify. And it was, it wasn't, uh, it's, it's amazing how like the matching of financial products and the matching of music are actually relatively similar because you have a product catalog and you have attributes and preferences and you're basically trying to do a multi-sided match. And uh, you know, at some in, in capital markets, you have price disparities and in uh, music, you have relatively similar as well, like the royalties on X song versus Y song or a cover band singing a song, very similar. So, um, and then the pie is the same. Like basically there's about four points that you can make on a mortgage and you have to figure out how to squeeze that out. And similarly, like, you know, the consumer is only gonna pay 9.99 a month for the, all you can eat and you don't have to figure it out. And so there were all these similarities. And so he came on board and then, you know, we started just building. So I, I would say that those were the tough points, but it was really tough to recruit for a mortgage company when there were all these other companies doing really cool things in New York at the same time. Those early days, you started by taking over an old school mortgage bank in California and then transformed it into a digital platform that's now better. How did that acquisition, like walk us through using and leveraging that acquisition to, to give you speed? So it was really counterintuitive because I remember being on the phone with like some very famous venture capitalists out in California who were like, wow, we love this. We love the, what, what you're doing, but you know, you need to do this from scratch. You can't like do this. And I was like, dude, you don't understand. Like these guys, they have the whole factory and it's like all working and they have the licenses. And you know, the problem is that you have two paths. You can go and start your own thing, but then A, you don't know what you don't know. B, you start to do like customer acquisition and Silicon Valley companies are very good at customer acquisition and you start acquiring customers but you don't control the rest of the process. So the promises you can make the customer are, are more limited. And so you don't actually acquire based on utility, you acquire based on better marketing and a better front end. So you have like a fancy looking front end and it's like mobile friendly and all that sort of stuff. But then the most of the juice in financial services is on the back end. And so you become a lead gen player, which is what happened for a lot of the guys that started mortgage companies or online mortgage companies like us in Silicon Valley is they spent so much time getting up to scale and they couldn't promise the consumer everything from click to close. And so they basically had to like over index on customer acquisition. And then they just basically became some version of a lead gen machine, right? We had the tougher task of actually doing the whole thing, but by controlling the whole thing, what we had the ability to do was start to make promises to the consumer. Uh, better rate guarantee will beat anyone's rate because we could actually fund it ourselves. Better closing guarantee, we will close on time, otherwise we'll give you X. And so we, re you know, mortgage is an industry where low accountability and we reintroduce the concept of guarantees. And to this day, there's not a single mortgage company and we instituted a better price guarantee now seven years ago, not, no one has followed to provide that price guarantee. And the thing is every one of those times, it, but we could have only done that if we were full stack, if we controlled the whole thing. Now, when we took over the mortgage company in California, you had a culture clash because you had the guys in Cal, you know, uh, the old school mortgage people, and then you had all the young folks. And the young folks, they could get to understand about 80% of the process, but then the remaining 20%, which, you know, where it went off from a computer into someone's head, it took a bunch of time for us to take that data out of that person's head or that decision tree out of that person's head and manifest it in code. And so we had to get those people to get along. And that was really difficult. But like we had to get the right type of technical people who were humble enough to know what they didn't know. Um, and frequently those are folks who are coming out of a 
you know, for lack of a better word, a startup that didn't work before, right? So they had gone in and had the sort of arrogance, you know, sort of come out of them. So we were really good at hiring people that had, had already been at one or two startups before. So they kind of understood like that. And then on the other side with the mortgage folks, traditionally those people are used to being in charge. We kind of had to teach them like, no, you're not in charge. You're like a subject matter expert. And there was a lot of friction. There was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of, I was like the grown up in the room and I had to like bring these people together every day for the all hands every day for all that. But over time, over nine months, 12 months, 18 months, we got the cultures to, to meld. And there's people who opted out. And then there's the people who opted in, they became really good friends. And now the culture is actually one culture. I want to just quickly walk through your customer experience today. And for everybody out there listening, if you simply head to, you know, better.com, better mortgage, literally every 60 seconds, somebody is applying for a mortgage. Walk us through what happens. You come in, what we really believe in is you're not coming to do anything. You know, what is the job to be done? So we really apply the, what is the job to be done framework. So if you're coming in for a refinance, what, what is the object of desire? You are looking for savings. So let's focus on how to get you savings as quickly as possible. You probably already have a mortgage. You have a short attention span. You probably have a lot of things going on in your life. Now, one of the things that we did win at was that we were very empathetic to our user because our user was not someone in their twenties. Our user was someone between the ages of 35 and 55. And so the things that let's say a young parent is going through, right, when they want to refinance or things like that, it's like you need to be able to get in and out and just get enough data to make a decision. So unlike other people who uh, in financial services spend a lot of time trying to build a relationship, we were always focused on deliver utility as quickly as possible. So you type in a few pieces of data in three minutes, you can get approved. That was the, the bulk of the utility function for the first three years is in three minutes, we would give you a rate and an approval. And that would likely take you anywhere from three hours to three days anywhere else. And so that became uh, our core you know, USP. Two, you come in, you type in a few pieces of data about yourself, and we give you a approval and a rate. Now you can give us a few more pieces of data, and we actually allow you to lock. And so traditionally what takes place in a mortgage bank or at Chase or Wells, it'll take you 15 days to lock. Here you can lock in 15 minutes. And so, you know, you come in and you've got a real shopping cart e-commerce type experience where you're in and out. Um, this again is for refinance, which is about half the market. And we just kept on just optimizing that and optimizing that to be as fast as possible. So you've got this cheap rate and then you can just immediately act on it. Kind of like if, you know, we were like kayak plus saber, uh, but for this, this, this asset class. Then from there, once we got to scale, we earned the right to do other stuff. So then we earned the right to help you buy a new house. Then we earned the right to uh, you know, help you do the same for homeowners insurance. Then we earned the right to also get you title insurance. Then we earned the right to you know, potentially recommend a realtor to you. Then you know, we earned the right to potentially be that realtor for you. So it was always about like, if we generate enough utility, then we're gonna earn the right to do the next thing and the next thing. And the way we earned the right, and we even knew, figured out how to do the next thing was simply we asked customers, hey, you went through this process, what is the next thing we could have helped you with? And they would tell us. And so we weren't geniuses. They would just tell us like what they what else they had encountered as friction along the way. And then we would go and try to solve it. Um, so it was very much like running a store, right? Where you like sell one product 
And then people are like, what else? And you just ask the customer, hey, anything else I can help you with? And they tell you, and then you go stock that next product when you stock the next product. And, and that, that was that's that's how the business goes today. The, everything is like really oriented towards helping the customer optimize for the three functions, speed, cost, uncertainty. Um, I want to just quickly make sure I say out loud that in uh, last year in 2020, you added almost 90,000 clients, which is pretty crazy to think about that scale. But how did you build trust? How did you think about the core ingredients, given that this is the most important, biggest financial decision to your point um, in people's lives? How did you think about trust? Honestly, like we are not very good marketers. And so we were not able to put a user interface or a face that would engender trust immediately. So we had to lean into what we were good at, which is utility. And so trust comes from, you know, rather than a relationship-based business, which is a lot of what financial services is, a relationship based on utility is far better than a relationship based and built on marketing. And so we would just do what we said we'd do. So if you could lock your rate in 15 minutes and then we have to fund, we fund you know, we do, and in mortgages and in most real estate transactions, trust is talked about and sold, but it's actually not delivered because people are like, well, whatever, you do it with once every seven years. But that was the biggest fallacy. It was like, no, you pay your mortgage every day, like 30% of your housing uh, of your monthly expenses, your mortgage. And so we had to reimagine even in the context of like purchases, right, which is a little bit more trust required because you're buying a house is the object of desire is the home. And we just kept on like, we're gonna help you get a better house. This is how we're gonna help you get a better house. This is how this all relates back. All, everything that we're doing relates back to how this is gonna get you a better house. And in the end, we get you a better house. And then, you know, you have repeat customers. So, you know, we're a very young company, but even la last year, 10% of our customer base was just people who had come back to better and for, for another transaction. And, uh, you know, it, the biggest thing, I think, if you think about trust, most fintech companies, I mean, their biggest challenge is customer acquisition. Over 30% of our customer base is purely organic. At Better, you charge no fees and there are no commissions. Walk us through how you thought about building up your revenue model, knowing that obviously you have to figure out a way to build a really, really big business. How do you guys think about revenue? So the way we thought about revenue, and this is where some of our capital markets expertise came around, we knew that there were multiple layers of intermediaries, even once the loan is uh, made, you know, the, there's, there's correspondent investors, there's correspondent investors and sell to the aggregators, the aggregators then sell into Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And so as I said, there was like three layers. So let's not try to make money off the consumer. Let's try to make money off the asset and the capital market. So, um, because we were, you know, coming from a background of, 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 of being traders and portfolio managers. So instead of arbitraging the consumer on behalf of the capital markets, which is what the industry does, let's arbitrage the capital markets on behalf of the consumer. So we said, if we can provide the, the capital markets with a superior product that's digitally delivered, that has superior underwriting characteristics, they will pay us a premium and it will allow us to bypass two or three different layers of intermediaries. Um, we were able to get Fannie Mae to approve us as a seller servicer, even as a very small company. Um, so we got approved in April 2016 to be able to deliver loans directly to wow. Fannie Mae. That saved us three layers of intermediaries and allowed us to provide this really low rate and really low fees, while at the same time effectively having the same cost of capital and funding costs as Bank of America, Citi, and Chase and & Wells. 
And that gave us an immense competitive advantage. And then, you know, now we're approved across all the various agencies. And, you know, we have this investor marketplace with 35 different investors. And what that's allowed us to fundamentally do is we literally today, if you're a Citibank customer, you can get a cheaper rate on better.com than you can uh, on Citibank.com. And we're funding it with Citibank's money. So literally, we do not compete with Citibank because we're actually funding your mortgage with Citibank's money. But we compete against the branches and the commission loan officers and the mortgage brokers and all those other things that Citibank adds to the cost. So um, and, and the, you know, that was a, a, a real like dream of ours because um, financial services and fintech, you can have a customer acquisition cost advantage. You can have a processing cost advantage, but you'll always have a cost of capital disadvantage. Now, by aggregating a trillion dollars of supply annually on our platform, we now have a cost of capital advantage against all the banks out there. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. COVID has dramatically changed housing. For everybody out there who is probably quite aware because we've all been out in big cities and in new places, can you just give us a little bit of the stats on like what has COVID done to housing in the last year and a half? So this generation of most recently millennials has been effectively what we would call short housing. They, you know, they valued experiences more. They want to be in the Airbnb. They want to rent. They don't want to be bogged down. And suddenly they went home and they re and, you know, the original object of desire to own your own home and to have the safety of home and the security of home and the, the assets and the savings and the certainty that it provides all of that manifested very, very quickly. So we've seen this deep acceleration of uh, the desire for housing curve kind of come back in. And so millennials are buying houses at a rate that has never been seen before. Home prices have gone up as a result. So you've seen home prices increase anywhere nationally from 10 to 20%. One of our friends, Scott Galloway, you know, said we were talking to him about it. It's like, well, but actually, if you think about it, home prices haven't actually gone up. Home prices have come down dramatically. Home prices, homes are cheaper now than they ever have been before. The reason is very simple. In the past, you would work and you know, you'd spend like basically four hours a day at home. So for 80 hours a month at home on the weekdays, and then maybe, you know, eight hours, eight hours like on the weekend. So like you're spending about a hundred hours a month at home now. And, and so you're spending, let's say three thousand dollars. So you're spending like, you know, thirty dollars an hour. It's costing you to consume home. Now you're spending like two hundred hours at home. And so actually. Home prices, even though they've gone up 10%, but actually the utility cost, the, the per hour cost of home has shrunk by 40 to 50%. So in a certain way, homes are never doing cheaper. Now there's so many utility functions that a home provides in COVID and you know going beyond because it's really highly unlikely that we're going to a full time, five day a week in the office type of thing for most people. Uh, that plus like what we eventually thought was going to happen with you know, driverless cars or like, you know, the reimagination of the suburbs, the suburbs are changing, they're becoming diverse, they're becoming, you know, more urbanized, all of these things are happening, uh, all nearly at the same time with COVID. 
And while all of this was happening and the manifestation of desire and desire to purchase homes was going through the roof for most Americans, uh, you couldn't walk into a Wells Fargo and be like, oh yeah, you know, I'll come and see Rick mortgage broker on Wednesday between two and 3 p.m. when it's convenient for him, right? Like nobody's going into a bank branch. And so that resulted in this massive increase in volume for anyone who had a purely online experience. And we were thankful in that we did have that. And um, so we grew 850% last year in revenue as a business. Um, wow. Yeah, we just leaned into it. It was, we, with the customers were coming and we were like Lieutenant Dan on like, you know, better shrimp company. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, like, and that, that was it. it was, we had no choice. It would just surf the tsunami or die. Um, last question I want to ask, just because you're the exact right person to ask. If we fast forward a decade, as we think about the home, you clearly have some unique hypotheses on what's happening around home ownership, the home technology innovation. Just give us a few tidbits of what you think is obvious that maybe isn't obvious to the rest of us. There's a couple of things. One, it's going to be totally okay not to own 100% of your home. You might be 62, want to go take a cruise around the world, sell down 13% of your home equity into a fractional marketplace and you know go travel the world. And maybe a portion of that 13% is bought by the person who thinks your house is their dream house, but they just don't have the money for it yet. So we're going to see kind of like the democratization of the stock market took place over the past 20, 30 years since Charles Schwab and E-Trade originally started the discount brokerage and you know to where we are today with Robinhood, where people are buying fractional shares of Coca-Cola or IB, or, or or Airbnb or, or Uberstock, we're going to see that in housing. We're going to see the ability for every child in America to dream about owning $1 worth of shares in a home that they pass by on the way from school to home every day and you know dream of one day growing up in. I want to transition a little bit to you. You were born in India and came to New York when you were seven. What do you think about your childhood? What do you think that you brought from India that has made you a better entrepreneur? I see the absolute best that America has to offer. I remember we, we took TWA here and I looked back at the airline terminal, the Eero Sarnan terminal, the Flamo Hotel, that's shaped like a bird. And I was like, oh my God, what an imaginative airline terminal like that's like shaped like a bird. But like the, 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 the I, I think it's just that like, awe of like the future is happening right now in front of me. I love it. Uh, you started your first company, which was called My Rich Uncle, which went public during the early 2000s. By 2007, it was the fourth largest student loan company in the United States. What did you think that first journey, what would you say was the one or two lessons that you took from that that you brought to this one that made you better at better? And My Rich Uncle, we hired a lot of experts. And then we realized eventually they knew like seven things. And then we had to get rid of them. And so we don't have experts at better anymore. We try not to hire them. We hire them as consultants. We get the seven things and then we let them be. And we usually pair the expert up with somebody who's like super sharp, super hungry and super down to like run really, really hard. And honestly, like, you know, I've taken a lot of flack for that over the past couple of years, but it's one of the keys to our success is there are no experts at better. At My Rich Uncle, we listened to the experts and they steered us wrong so many times. I want to talk about what surprised you being a founder, right? There, it seems to me like you've done this, you've been through the rodeo. What's the thing that you just were like, wow, I, ne I never expected that about being a founder that's been hard for you? The worst thing is the utter, like, like you have to do everything. Like you pick up, like you literally have to do 
everything and be totally okay doing everything. And you have to be totally okay doing everything all the time. You know, you have to just decide at one point, at some point in time that it's actually not going to get better. It's just, you can change how you feel about it. You can change that like, oh, I wish I wasn't picking up the garbage off the floor, but you're going to be doing that as long because you just care more than everyone else. I'm just laughing because it's so true. Oh, everyone always sees eye to eye on my podcast. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just really quickly, what are your tips? And uh, you've got to have a trick for sanity. What is yours? When I'm really mad, I think about all the people, whether it's my customers or like my colleagues who are benefiting from me getting over the little thing that's like really pissing me yeah. off. And, 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 you know, cause it's not like the investors, the investors are going to be, you know, they, they do 20 deals and you know, you're, 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 you're a seller in a spreadsheet. It'd be nice. Like if you're, if you're a seller in a spreadsheet that makes them a lot of money, that's like kind of nice, but like, is there, it's, you just have to realize like in the end, like you just got, who are you doing it for? And then just remember that those people, uh, when it's tough. Yeah, a really, really good advice. I'm going to ask quick fire round, three quick questions. First thing that comes to your mind, what was the biggest pinch me moment to date for better? COVID. Wow, that's a really good one. And it's very true based on what you just told us. Fast forward two years, how many days a week will we be in an office? Three and a half. Last question, other than better, one startup, anything early, any innovative product, anything that you want to pay it forward to and give a shout out to? There's a kid named Yuyun. I say it's a kid like because I'm a grown up now, but uh, <laughs> who has an app called Cohere, and it's like an integrated chat, video chat, phone booking, like it's basically like conversion in a box for our website, and it's really great. And he's amazing, and he's just like it's him and this other dude, and they like no, don't say yes, like. They, they, they say yes to everything. And they like, I can build that for you in two days. I can. And, and, and when I see him, he has this youthful exuberance of like, oh my God, he has like the benefit of infinite capability and infinite time and towards something that's actually really useful. So uh, I have to give him a shout out. And what was the name of the company again? Just so everyone can hear. Oh, here. C-O-H-E-R-E. Everybody out there. First of all, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. This was truly delightful. Guys, if you're out there, you need a mortgage or you have not ever heard of Better, please head to better.com and you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel.